Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Maybelle Romero, an assistant professor of law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today my guest is Hafsa S. Mansour. She is a 3L and a Center for Social Justice Scholar and a student attorney at the Immigrants' Rights and International Human Rights Clinic at Seton Hall. She has a paper that's coming out in the Elon Law Review in 2021 entitled Guilty Until Proven Guilty, Effective Bail Reform as a Human Rights Imperative. And that's the paper we're going to be discussing today. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and really thrilled to talk about um, your paper that happily is going to be coming out pretty shortly um, on bail reform. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I think your paper is really fascinating, and it talks about looking at um, this concept of bail reform, which is a really sort of um, hot topic right now, um, and looking at it from the framework of international human rights and that sort of international human right access to justice sort of perspective. But I think it's really important just to start sort of at the beginning of your paper here, and really acknowledging some really important cases of people who have been denied justice because of um, the American bail system. So could you tell me a little bit about what happened with Khalif Browder back in 2010? Yeah, so Khalif Browder's story is just a really powerful one. When he was 16 years old in 2010, he was accosted by police for allegedly stealing a backpack, and he continued to protest his innocence. He said he absolutely didn't do it, and he refused to plead guilty to a crime that he didn't commit, but that meant that he was then sentenced to a $3,000 bail, and his family couldn't afford to literally buy his freedom. Um, and that meant that he was sentenced to jail at Rikers Island for over a thousand days. He was placed in solitary confinement for over two years. And in his words, he was robbed of his own happiness. And so when he was 20 years old, prosecutors finally pronounced that they were unable to meet the burden of proof trial. They had literally no evidence and they were forced to drop all of the charges that they had laid against him. But by that point in time, he had already spent four years in the horror of Rikers and so when he was 22, unfortunately, in 2015, he hanged himself and he was haunted by all of the torture that he was subjected to at Rikers. And despite the fact that he was never convicted of a crime, all of this torture was sort of laid at his door and there was nothing that he or his family could do to alleviate that because they couldn't afford the bail amount that had been laid on his head to purchase his freedom. And could you tell us more about um, the case of Sandra Bland? So Sandra Bland was a 28-year-old black woman. This was in 2015. She was pulled over for failing to signal a lane change, a relatively minor offense. Um, she was a black woman, and there was some back and forth between her and the officer where she was really frustrated with having been pulled over. Um, and the officer was not happy to not have a perfectly compliant happy human being um, to be pulled over. And so the magistrate, uh, excuse me, and then she was custodially arrested and taken to jail. A magistrate set bail at $5,000. She only needed to pay $500, which is 10% to a bail bondsman in order to secure her release, but she had just moved. She didn't have access to any family or friends in the area. She was about to start a new job. So she didn't have those $500. Um, and so she was left in jail for three days after just a traffic stop and she was found hanging in her jail cell. Um, it was an apparent suicide. There's still some speculation about whether or not it was something more sinister than that, 
But as far as we know, um, it was, according to the official reports, a suicide and her family was still trying to collect the money when they found out that she had died. Um, we've since seen legislation that's been passed in her honor to try to mandate release of defendants with illnesses and disabilities um, on bond. But even after both the stories of Khalif Browder and Sandra Bland, we're still seeing horrific stories of people who are either dying in jail or immediately after release from jail, um, having been detained only on pretrial bond and so still being legally innocent. So following up on this um this passage of this act that was meant to prevent situations like, um, you know, Sandra Bland's from occurring. In fact, it was called the Sandra Bland Act, correct? Um, Janice Dotson Stevens, could you tell us a bit more about what happened to her? She was 61 and arrested in 2018 for misdemeanor trespass in Southern Texas. So again, right around where Sandra Bland was arrested. Um, She had a known history of schizophrenia. And despite the Sandra Bland Act, she wasn't released. She wasn't offered any mental health treatment. Um, Instead, she was held in a $300 bond. And again, you only have to pay 10% to a bondsman to secure release. So she only needed to pay $30 to be able to buy her release, but was unable to do so. Um, So despite that low bail amount, despite the minor offense for which she was arrested, she was in prison for over five months. Absolutely no one visited her during that time, not even her court-appointed lawyer. Um, In fact, her family wasn't even notified that she was in jail until they were told to come collect her body um, because she died. And I'd like to talk about just one more specific case here. Um, Could you tell us about Leilene Kubilet-Polanco? Uh, She was a 27-year-old Afro-Latina transgender woman. She, again, was arrested on misdemeanor charges, this time in April of 2019. Um, She was unable to make her $500 bail, so she sent to Rikers Island, unfortunately, much like Khalif Browder. She's placed in solitary confinement, even though Rikers regulations supposedly are um, banned the use of punitive segregation on anybody who has a mental or psychiatric condition. And Ms. Blanco had both schizophrenia and epilepsy. Um, And three months after being sent to Rikers, she was found unresponsive in her cell and was pronounced dead nearly three hours later. And the report suggests that it was as a result of an epileptic seizure, during which she wasn't supervised or aided because she was in solitary confinement. So these all are very tragic, tragic stories with very tragic endings. And it seems that they are taken altogether sort of they paint a story for us, I think, that you really highlight well in your paper about the dangers of cash bail and the like. Um, But not necessarily everyone dies if they're subject to cash bail. Can you tell us about some of the other challenges, um, you know, short of death that people might face if they are poor and they're having to put up some sort of cash bail? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're fortunate to the extent that we can use that word. Um, that deaths are sort of exceptional in the context of cash bail, but by and large, tragedy is still the rule, right? It's not anomalous whatsoever for people who are held on bail to lose their housing because they've lost their jobs, or they'll lose custody of their children because maybe they're single parents, um, and that's the only person that they have to caretake, and now they're being incarcerated. And we've seen 
plenty of examples of people who lose weeks of income, who miss really important holidays with their family or the birth of their own child, who maybe lose their house or their access to a shelter, um, any kind of medical uh, treatment that they may be trying to access may be stripped away when they're incarcerated in jail. Um, and plenty of people suffer a lot of physical damage from violence during their incarceration. And all of this happens regardless of whether or not that case is ultimately dismissed or the prosecutor drops all of the charges against them as baseless, or even if they just accept a guilty plea to go home because people are so desperate to get out of these horrific conditions and try to scramble back together some sense of normalcy in their life outside of jail um, to regain their job, custody of their children, to no longer be in physically threatening conditions, that they will do whatever it takes to get out. So approximately 60% of all jail inmates in the U.S. are unconvicted and legally innocent, which means that as of the moment of their incarceration, they are not serving a constitutional punishment, um, or at least not something that the Constitution would recognize as a punishment. And more than half of unconvicted detainees are going to spend at least a month in jail and a quarter to spend between two and six months in jail. Before uh, New Jersey's bail reform went into effect, that jurisdiction in particular I studied, um, nearly 40% of its jail population was just unsentenced pretrial detainees who, again, are legally innocent because the charges against them innocent until proven guilty. So, Ms. Mansour, I, I know that a lot of folks have advocating, excuse me, they've advocated using um, these fancy risk-based assessments in particular, to try to solve this problem of using cash bail too much or using it indiscriminately. And they say, hey, look, we'll be able to figure out what risk everyone before the court presents, and we'll be able to tailor what we need a lot more based on these assessments. Um, will that be effective, you think, or not? Yeah, so a lot of these pretrial risk assessment tools are really hailed as sort of this panacea of bail reform, that every problem that we have with the bail system is suddenly going to be solved with this quick fix of just turning everything over to the subjective algorithm and using complicated mathematical formulas and computers and science to try to predict whether or not somebody is likely to reoffend or fail to appear if they're released. The problem is that this is neither going to actually really focus on the twin constitutional aims of bail and to ensure subsequent appearance and mitigate reoffense, or really have an objective set of criteria. As to the first, we're really not mitigating any of the problems with cash bail just by substituting this algorithmic decision maker when that decision maker is in itself biased. So all of the, sorry, the premise of any kind of statistical predictive algorithm is that we're going to take the data that we already have and use it as a mirror to predict what's going to happen in the future on the idea that these sort of trends are going to remain the same. But when the data that we're using to predict the future is in itself biased and really riddled with a lot of complicated discriminatory patterns, those same patterns of inequity are inevitably going to be necessarily reflected in those future predictions that it makes. So we see this on sort of two ends. One, the data that we're actually collecting and using as a predictive mechanism is fundamentally flawed. We are talking about using a 
rich history, unfortunately, of racist policing practices and racist criminal justice practices to then try to figure out whether or not somebody is going to be once again um, policed and is likely to reoffend. So we're using things like neighborhood crime rates as a positive predictor of reoffense, even though we know that neighborhood crime rates is really strongly correlated with both race and poverty. So what that really is, is almost using race as a proxy for reoffense. And we're also seeing problems in the collection of data on the individual level. When people are looking at an individual's past criminal history, what they're looking at is not really their past criminality and the number of times that they've done something unlawful, but the number of times that somebody has been arrested for it. And when we know that people of color are more likely to be arrested, tried, and convicted of a crime when a white person would not be, what that really means is that we are looking at this whole process through the lens of race, but pretending that it's not there. And those inequities are then baked into the statistical algorithm that is using all of that theoretically objective data to try to predict whether or not somebody needs to be detained pre-trial. And all of that is being hidden behind this sort of sheen of scientific objectivity that isn't really there and is simultaneously baking all of this bias deeper into the system. So you take a, a bit of a novel approach then in your paper here, which is introducing this concept of the human right of access to justice. In, in particular, I'm sort of importing this concept from international law into this question about bail reform in particular. So can you tell me just a bit more about the normative framework that you're using to look at this question of bail reform and maybe just explain some of the parameters that you're using to define what exactly access to justice as a human right means? Access to justice is one of those, I know it when I see it, right? Sometimes in human rights law, um, I think the, first of all, the value of using a human rights lens as opposed to constitutional or even statutory law is that we're trying to create this higher and more elevated discourse about how fundamental these issues really are. It's not something that's derogable in any way. And there's a lot of talk about the access to justice right in particular as being a peremptory norm, which means under no consequences can you whatsoever deviate from it. And we're also talking about then turning this into sort of an objective legal standard instead of really a policy debate that becomes really partisan, that talks a lot more about morals, and really trying to elevate it into this, you can't alter this baseline rule no matter what horrible things are happening in the world. Um, right now, for instance, New York is debating whether or not to roll back some of the cash bail reforms that it's implemented in light of COVID-19 and how the budget crisis is working. But if we're talking about bail reform as a human right, then that no longer becomes feasible because we're talking about this baseline standard that is never, ever um, to be deviated from. So the human right of access to justice is sort of complicated because everybody acknowledges that it's there, but not a lot of folks have unfortunately spent time concretizing exactly what that means. Um, but as best I understand it, when we're talking about access to justice in the context of a criminal domestic trial, um, there's a structural piece of court access and this procedural piece of ensuring fair process through that trial. So on the structural side, that means that all criminal defendants in a domestic tribunal should always be guaranteed equal access to the court in the first instance and an impartial tribunal that is competent, meaning that it's constituted by law and able to hear 
what proceedings are happening before it and that they have an access or they have a right to a public hearing. So whatever proceedings are going on, um, the public has a right to know and that they're not held in sort of kangaroo courts or sh shadow courts that nobody really understands what's happening. And on the procedural side, fundamentally, this really comes down to a presumption of innocence, that people are entitled to be informed of the charges against them, that they have the right to an adequate defense, including potentially assistance of counsel to prepare that defense, and that the machinery of the state or of the court system cannot be used to compel someone or coerce them into pleading guilty. And as part of that, the prosecution then has the burden to prove guilt as opposed to the defendant to disprove it, to disprove to prove their innocence, um, because all of this is really coming down to ensuring that only somebody who's truly factually and legally guilty is actually then convicted and suffers the punishment that comes from that conviction. You know, I assume that a lot of our listeners have not had the chance to sit in on bail hearings at length, um, or to really go and observe those. What I'd like for you to do, if you could, is sort of give us a rundown as to what that process looks like. What happens after a typical defendant gets arrested? How does bail get set? So best case scenario, um, a defendant is arrested and then immediately brought before a judge or a magistrate judge to determine whether or not they're going to be released pending disposition of the criminal charges that are against them and to determine on what conditions, whether that's monetary or non-monetary, um, a monetary condition would be something like cash bail, non-monetary conditions would be something like um, having to check in with a parole, with a, a judicial officer or being subject to some sort of ankle monitoring during the time that they're released, um, or alternately, whether they're just going to be detained pretrial, that there's no conditions on which they can be released, or ideally that somebody will just be released on their own recognizance, meaning that we're not going to ask you to put up any money with the court. We're not going to subject you to any additional restrictions and liberty. We're just going to trust that you're going to come back with this order that you're going to return for your court trial. Um, and these bail hearings can either be simultaneous to arraignments, which is when charges are officially filed against the defendant and it's their first opportunity to submit a plea, or then in some jurisdictions, it can be months prior to arraignment and there's a lot of discrepancy between how different jurisdictions conduct and under what processes and timelines that they this process goes through. Um, unfortunately, a significant number of jurisdictions hold bail hearings over video conference, and there's a disconcerting number of jurisdictions who just use a pre-written bail schedule to determine at what price bail is going to be set. And so they just look at the offense for which an individual is charged, look at the um, dollar sign that's right next to it, and then take it off so that these bail hearings are happening in a couple of minutes or even seconds. Um, and then you just go through, and if you can't pay the bail, then you're incarcerated. Um, and plenty of jurisdictions don't provide counsel at these hearings. So a lot of times defendants are really going it alone. And you mentioned the ubiquity of cash bail as a condition of release in the United States, that 25% of cases in New York um, and 50% of cases in Baltimore. Um, this seems pretty overwhelming. <laughs> I just wanted to highlight that real quick. But um, let's talk about bail and the two supposed fundamental goals it's supposed to serve. What is bail supposed to do? 
So there's two constitutionally accepted goals for why we would detain somebody on bail. One is just to ensure that they're going to appear at trial, that they're not going to flee the jurisdiction or abscond or somehow otherwise prevent the um, implementation of whatever we consider to be justice in their case. And the second is to prevent reoffense, that we're going to mitigate any sort of public safety threat that could result that could arise if a defendant is released pending disposition of their charges um, and then commits a new crime while on that release. So could you explain to us how in, in imposing cash bail on a defendant might be might have different effects if you're a poor defendant versus a rich defendant? So there are some disconcerting statistics about the number of people who are detained pretrial on sometimes really petty cash bail, $30, $40, some of the stories like we've already discussed, um, and are detained really only because they can't afford to put up those few $1,000 that they need to in order to be released. Um, we've seen studies of New York City pretrial detention for instance, that found that 71% of felony defendants and 68% of misdemeanors for whom bail was set were unable to post it and secure their release. And even within that study, we know that 81% had bail set below $5,000, which means $500 would have secured their release, and 41% had a less than $1,000 bail, which would be $100 to secure their release if you pay a bail bondsman to put up the rest. Um, and so what's really troubling is that we're seeing folks who are being detained not necessarily because of the offense for which they're actually being charged but simply because they can't afford to put up that amount of money and so they're sort of stuck until their family can squander together whatever they have or really until the disposition of their criminal charges whether that comes from a trial and conviction or far more likely from a guilty plea you term it in your paper, a system of jail for the poor and justice for the rich, essentially. Um, and there's a big class discrepancy that's going on here. And oftentimes you see a, a strong connection between race and class and um, wealth in this country as well. Um, given these discrepancies, how exactly does this go about violating human rights? It really comes as the amalgam of both the jail for the poor and then the justice for the rich, because when individuals are detained pretrial, there's a lot of collateral consequences that come from their inability to access the outside world. Um, first of all, just the ability to access an attorney is significantly decrease when you're incarcerated because you don't have the same opportunity to collect evidence to secure private attorneys should you wish to do so to meet with a court-appointed attorney if that's available. Um, and then detention is also changing the incentives for fighting a charge. Now, you, especially if you're detained on a pretty minor offense, um, have a significant likelihood of reaching a plea deal with the prosecution for just time served so that at best, this is going to be an opportunity for you to leave without paying any money, um, to immediately get out and get back to your life, to secure your job, to watch the birth of your child, to not lose custody of your child, whatever it may be that is waiting for you outside. And that's a really powerful incentive of just jail is a terrible place to be. It's often unsanitary and unpleasant and potentially life-threatening. And I desperately need to get out. So if you're being offered what seems like a very good deal, it seems like something that's not going to have a lot of collateral consequences, even though it is, um, it's really tantalizing to be able to say, okay, I'm just going to take this guilty plea and, and leave and try to put my life back together on the other side of this cage. 
Um, and it also is different than when you're released, right? Because if you are already out and you have the opportunity to collect the, the evidence to be able to have an attorney, then if you were actually to be incarcerated on this guilty plea or on this conviction, then that is a change in the status quo. Whereas a guilty plea, even if it is going to be some additional service of time um, on the charge that you're facing, for somebody who is already detained pretrial, that's at best an extent or at worst an extension of the status quo. So it's really disincentive for almost fighting the case in the first instance because there's this immediate opportunity for release. And for some folks who are held on really minor charges, there may not even be an opportunity um, or a statutory permission for any kind of jail time attached to that offense. So the only time that they're actually serving in jail is pretrial, which is really disconcerting when we know that the Constitution actually says that pretrial jail um, is not, in fact, constitutionally punishment. Um, and so when we talk about this in terms of human rights, what that really sounds like is we're undermining the presumption of innocence. The fact that somebody is going to plead guilty after they've been held on pretrial bail almost seems like a foregone conclusion that guilt, that some sort of conviction is going to result. And that almost operates as like a de facto burden shift where it's no longer that the prosecution is proving guilt, but more that the defendant is using the strength of their evidence to try to prove their innocence and to petition for some sort of reduction in charges, not even to try to plead uh, not guilty, but just to try to get as good of a deal as they can, always assuming that that guilty plea is going to be the baseline from which we go. Um, and when you also erode, like I said, an, an opportunity for an adequate defense, that's a procedural human rights violation. Um, and structurally, I think we really have to question whether or not this then is equal access to a tribunal and an impartial tribunal when we know that so much of these discrepancies really line up along class lines and it doesn't seem like it is an adjudication of factual and legal guilt but really just a conversation about wealth status so we've touched a little bit upon the inequities that arise when we use um, risk-based assessment and everything and i wanted to get a bit more specific in talking about um where you're located right now in the state of new jersey um there has been and it's been touted as being a really great progressive reform um, recently when New Jersey really overhauled its bail system in 2017. Um, you mentioned in your paper that there was this bombshell report from the Drug Policy Alliance um, really, you know, laying it out for everyone, a lot of the problems that were happening with regard to the bail system at the time and people who were being jailed, you know, awaiting trial and everything. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what this overhaul was and whether you think it's effective or not? So in 2012, when the jail system in New Jersey was studied, um, they found that almost three quarters of the individuals who were held in the jail system on any given day were actually pretrial detainees awaiting jail, that they would be jailed for, on average, 139 days um, just waiting for a grand jury appearance and 324 days while they're awaiting sentencing. And nearly 40% of that total jail inmate population is detained solely due to their financial inability to post bail, no matter the fact that those bail amounts were often relatively small, which goes back to some of the concerns that we were talking about earlier. Um, and so three months after that report was published, New Jersey says that they're going to implement this Committee on Criminal Justice 
um, in order to address bail related issues and some speedy trial concerns, um, noting all of the things that we've talked about earlier, that pretrial detainees are more likely to plead guilty, to be convicted, to be sentenced, that the sentences are often harsher if you were detained pretrial than if you were released. And so they say that we're going to move from a resource-based system focusing on cash bail to one that's uh, employing a more objective risk-based method. So they're moving towards using this algorithmic pretrial risk assessment tool on the basis that this is going to provide a better system of cash bail. And it's supposed to really closely look at just what is likely to, sorry, it's supposed to, it's supposed to look exclusively at whether or not an individual is likely to reoffend um, or then to flee and nothing else. So it's supposed to completely take out any sort of factors that are related to indigency, race, and ethnicity. But as we've already mentioned, a lot of the factors that it's still looking at, like past criminal history or neighborhood crime rate, are still going to very strongly correlate with race, even if that isn't the express element that is included within that algorithm that's, or a value that's inputted. Um, and so New Jersey uses the public safety assessment tool, which was developed by a nonprofit to use a bunch of these objective factors, try to produce um, scores on a scale of one to six about whether or not a defendant is likely to fail to appear or to commit new criminal activity, and then use that to determine whether or not somebody should be released on their own recognizance, um, held on cash bail, released on non-monetary conditions, or then mandatorily held with no exceptions. And it's supposed to create this sort of gradation where the default is to release all defendants on their own recognizance. And only if the prosecutor makes a motion and provides a certain amount of evidence, can we increase that to either non-monetary conditions, monetary conditions, or mandatory detention. The problem is that even though we have seen, which is fantastic, a 42.4% decrease in New Jersey's detainee population from 2016 to 2019, which is during the duration of the implementation of this bail reform, um, we're not seeing that same decrease really accrue across all racial populations. So the racial makeup of New Jersey jails really has remained disconcertingly constant throughout the time of this bail reform period. And black detainees in particular are remaining detained on average for nearly twice as long as white detainees. So the fact that this bail reform is theoretically sort of doing its job because we don't see the same overinflated jail populations that we saw in 2012 isn't comforting when we're not seeing that same benefit accrue across all people. If that benefit is really continuing to be across some sort of identity status as the determinant for whether or not somebody is, is granted the benefits of bail reform, then it's not really effective bail reform. All we've done is sort of change the label by which we're deciding whether or not somebody is going to be held pretrial or not, whether that's class or race, although unfortunately, class and race are really strongly correlated, again, because of structural discrimination in this country. So we're still really just incarcerating the same people pretrial, just hiding it under this new veneer of science. And that's really complicated because it means the people who are going to say that this is totally fine, we're all good, can point to those same statistics and say, yes, this is totally fine. Look at the decrease in pre-child bail population. And people who are really trying to dig into why this is or isn't effective are going to potentially run across the difficulty of this 
really veneer of objectivity that we've placed over these decisions. And in many jurisdictions, the black box that these algorithms are in where you can't access the code or the variables because they're created by some sort of for-profit entity. Um, and that creates this, this really big problem with just transparency in the bail system where none of this is really solving the problem because it's so focused on the quick fix. And instead, it's just replicating past inequities and passing it off as better. Well, that is really troubling. Um, and it sounds like a lot of the same inequities and a lot of the same biases that are baked in the system sound like they keep perpetuating themselves. Um, given that reality that you were just describing for us, those who are bail reform advocates, how should they go about approaching this and using this human rights lens that you um, that you advocate in the paper? I think the really important part here is that nothing can be a quick fix, right? There's no one thing that we can solve in order to say that suddenly bail is not going to be a problem, that it's going to be entirely perfect. Um, And the lens of human rights is really important to me in the sense that it really is this objective legal framework that we have, where we're no longer calling this sort of a moral foible, or we're saying that it's just about uh, partisan policy agendas, but it's this international human right that's this transcendental value system that we've all agreed, theoretically, is going to be sort of superordinate. It's this most important fundamental values that we can never derogate from, that all countries around the world acknowledge is important. And when we start to conceptualize the way that the United States' criminal system operates as not just sort of this moral or policy failing, but as really a human rights violation, where we start to think about this as something that puts us on the same plane as plenty of other countries that we've labeled as human rights violators. And we're no longer this sort of amazing police power where we're going to fix everything and we have no problems, but we're thinking about our own failings in terms of international human rights law. Then it becomes really important for us to start to work on remedying some of those harms where we're no longer able to just say, we can wait on this for a later date when it's more convenient for us to fix it. And instead it becomes an imperative right now to get effective bill reform, not to look for the quick fix, but to look for something that's systemic. And so I think advocates of bill reform have an opportunity to use this as a new tool, given that the policy arguments really don't seem to be carrying as much weight as we would hope, that the constitutional law is there, but seems like it's just platitudes without teeth, where we're saying that we have this right to equal access, but we're not able to realize it. And so maybe human rights as this sort of more hefty feeling normative framework can provide the opportunity that we've been sort of looking for um, to advocate for a more effective bail reform system. Well, thank you, Ms. Mansour, for joining us today. And this has been a fascinating read, and it's been such a great time chatting with you. Again, congratulations on having this getting, um, excuse me, congratulations on getting this accepted for publication and congratulations on your imminent graduation. Thank you so much. Hopefully with uh, coronavirus happening, I can still, you know, graduate and pass the bar. So we shall see. I'm sure you will meet success everywhere you go. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me and for your kind words.
please come home Cause your daddy's all alone I have tried in vain Never more to call your name When you left you broke my heart That would never make us part Every hour in the day you can hear me say Baby won't you please come home Your daddy needs you Baby won't you please come home 